week, Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes. Money is social change. Ethi is one of our most popular ETFs, the less sexy part. They're all just as sexy inspire a younger generation. Representation is so important. Women are just as good as men. Your first investing memory. I was in year three or four. Behind the headlines. One example. Remove Tesla from Ethi. There was allegations of discrimination. Forced labour related issues. We're not scared to screen out companies. You know how these days everyone says they meet their significant other online? Well, while Jess and I aren't dating, I do credit social media for our serendipitous friend union. It really was a match made in heaven because we both had the same aim for being online, making investing accessible. Please welcome Jess Lung of The Lung Way on Instagram. She's the portfolio manager for BetaShares. She's the owner of the world's best liquor cabinet and is mum to world's cutest and most energetic staffy Luna. Welcome to Big Swinging Stocks, Jess. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I'm so excited to have you on. It's pretty poor form on my part, but maybe indicative of the broader finance industry that it is week four and you are my first woman on the show. So thank you for coming on. And here's hoping we're going to have more diversity in the industry in the future because it's always a good thing. <laughs> well, thank you again. And I'm honored to be a first female guest. Oh, and what a fantastic female guest I have. So speaking of female guest, Jess, you're also the first in your team, I believe, from stalking you on Instagram. You're the first for- female portfolio manager in your team. Is that correct? Yes, I am. And I've got to ask, this is maybe a very, very stereotypical question, but given you are the first female on your team, What's it like? And more broadly, how has your career in finance been shaped by your perspective as a woman, but also just generally in facing an industry that is still quite male dominated? Yes, I've been working close to nine years now. And, and you know, I would say that throughout my career span that there hasn't been many senior female role models or mentors for me to look up to. And like you said, finance or there are other industries as well that are very male dominated. And then when you drill down to investment roles, that number dwindles substantially. So the percentage of female portfolio managers in Australia is 6%. So that's a single digit. Six percent. So if there was a hundred people in the room, there would only be six that are females. That's so that's quite a scandal. You know, we talk about if we talk listing back to the gender assessment criteria for our funds and that people are more interested about gender diversity on boards and how companies are hiring better for the money that we're investing in. It is interesting to me that we haven't maybe, well, I suppose I can ask you, have you seen the situation improve? I mean, we're talking about six, but I imagine it was far lower when you started. 
I would say it's gradually improving. So you have the likes of Hester and even, you know, Macquarie that are now run by, you know, amazing, Female smart, CEOs, articulate women. Oh, amazing. <laughs> and, you know, the ASX just also hired the first female CEO. So it is changing, but slowly. But uh, so luckily I do work at Beta Shares and they are very supportive. So, yes, at Beta Shares, we are working on several initiatives to help diversity and inclusion and to help build the pipeline. But, you know, according to Morningstar, women are just as good as men at managing money. And if I say myself, maybe even slightly better. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Um, But that's why personally um, I would... I would just love to see more females in the space. And that's also a big reason as to why I started my social media, mm. you know, to be the representation and to hopefully inspire a younger generation to want to get, uh, to want to work into finance, to want to get into ETFs and especially to be in an investment role. I, you mentioned that it, there was very few role models for you when you started. And as someone who does follow your, your social media and just generally, I would say we're friends. So I passively stalk you, your life online. I am so inspired by what you're doing. And also you are not even close to aware of the impact you're going to have because representation is so important and also diverse representation. It's one thing for us to achieve reasonable levels of white women in finance, but we also need to make sure that at the same time, we're not just perpetuating the same sort of uh, disparities in other ways. So I'm inspired. And I love the idea that a little girl is going to follow you on Instagram and also have a dream to become a portfolio manager because the import of diverse voices in every room is important, but especially when we're talking about money, because let's be honest, money is social change. And it's so, so wonderful to see all that you're doing because it can only get better. We can only go from six to eight to 12 to 17 to 40 uh, if we keep pushing. So I'm really gratified to hear that BetaShares is taking it seriously and that they've been so supportive of your career. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much to me. (laughs) And yes, diversity on all levels is so important. And hopefully, you know, maybe even one day we'll make that number 51%. Thank you, Jess. My question to you is, do you remember your first investing memory? (laughs) Do I remember? Vaguely, but yes. (laughs) So I'll probably have to go back to when I was in year three or four, so probably eight or nine years old. And then we were in primary school and then we had a teacher one day just came in and all gave us a photocopy of a newspaper. And then it was a photocopy of that page where it listed all the stock prices. So back then, you know, we didn't have our phones, no such thing as iPhone. You couldn't check your live stock prices. You could just check on the newspaper. So that tells you how old I am. But (laughs) um, she gave us an exercise. So the exercise was pretend you had $10,000. How would you invest it? Um, And yes, and that was really my first investment memory. That is fantastic. What an imprint that made on you. I wonder if that teacher knows that you're now a portfolio manager at (laughs) Betish. What a legacy (laughs) for that exercise. We should have that in all schools. Well, speaking of beta shares, uh, you are the portfolio manager for Ethi. And amongst self-wealth community members, Ethi is one of our most popular ETFs in the top five. It usurps Vanguard's top four. And I think that's really interesting because relatively speaking, Ethi is a kind of new ETF and not just that, it's a relatively new index as well. Tweet length summary, quotable quote, 
Why do you think it's had extraordinary cut through other than your fantastic stewardship, obviously, but what do you think has resonated with investors? Hmm. It's going to be hard to keep a tweet length because there's so many good attributes about this fund. But if I have to just choose one, it'll be, is that it's true to label. Ah, what a concise and political answer. So let's, let's talk, let's dig under the hood of that because, um, I think sustainable investing is very popular. It's become, there's a lot of products on the market, but construction, I assume is what you're talking to when you talk about true to label. So what is Ethi's construction and what is it about the construction of the ETF that makes it, in your eyes, a true sustainable product? Yeah, so we worked with Nasdaq um, to make this product back in uh, before 2017, so before it was launched. And thinking back then, there, there wasn't really an ESG product in both or either the ETF or the managed fund space. So this really was a trailblazer in terms of ESG and ETFs. It was one of the first products to combine both positive and negative screens. Um, it currently has the most comprehensive set of screens in the market. So for some examples include fossil fuel, human labor rights, and gender diversity. So I just think on a broader level, it just appeals to your green and keen investors, as well as those, you know, just starting out investing, but want to do good with their money and go down the ESG path. Uh, in terms of construction, so what the portfolio gives you is that it gives you exposure to a diversified portfolio of global names that are considered climate leaders in its industry. So I guess the NASDAQ itself is a fairly tech heavy index to start with. And what Ethi does is, is it perhaps a more critical selection criteria? So would you have a narrower or a more, uh, let's say to your point, a more green set of companies within Ethi? And I guess to that point, how does the index decide what companies go on and what don't? So what is negative and positive screening? Mm-hmm. So why don't we start off firstly with what is negative screen? Uh, negative screening is when you are excluding companies. So you're choosing a certain attribute of, for some examples, you might be just excluding based on a sector of line of business that they're in. So some of the most common ones like fossil fuel, gambling, tobacco, weapons, or what you might consider your sin stocks. While positive screening is that you're choosing it to be included as opposed to excluded. And that's another way you can put it is that you're choosing the best in class. So you can choose based on ESG metrics when compared to their peers. You might be looking at companies that are trying to improve their score or choosing companies that have already established a high score. So now now that we've defined what negative and and positive screening is, we can I guess just jump into how uh, Ethi's index is constructed. So first of all, you start off with a large global um, universe. So there's companies selected from developed markets, and then they must meet certain liquidity and market cap criteria. And then from there, companies that are in the top third of performers in terms of carbon efficiency, so that's calculated from scope one, two, and three emissions, are chosen as well as companies that are engaged in activities that can help reduce carbon use by other industries. So um, back to your point on whether it's more green, we choose the companies that are considered climate leaders or the most efficient in terms of carbon efficiency. Mm. So there's and then multiple from there we metrics apply. then, multiple filters. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, essentially first is your, they have to be in developed markets and obviously they have to be a stock listed on, a, on an exchange and then they go through liquidity and then a certain 
market cap filters, and then we have the carbon efficiency, and then we go through our full set of comprehensive negative screens. Mm. It's really interesting to me that the trend of ESG, there's been especially millennial investors, certainly at Self-Wealth, we see a trend that millennial and Gen Z investors are sort of skewing towards greener or ESG labeled at least stocks. What I find really interesting about it is there's obviously been an incredible inflow of funds into ETFs and other stocks that are marketed as or are trying to be carbon neutral. But here's my counter thought. I'm certainly what I would call a climate active light investor. So it's something I dabble in. But my counterpoint to that, and I'm interested for you for this on a philosophical level, there's obviously companies out there who are significant emitters and in terms of contribution to our climate issues are oversubscribed in their uh, accountability for emissions. Do you think there's a valid argument to be made that they're really the companies that we should be pressuring to move towards carbon neutral and certainly that investment or the withdrawal of investment or the withholding of funds is one way we can encourage those customer, um, companies to commit to really, really significant emissions targets? Yes, I think you've raised a really good point. Um, it's not just that we're withholding companies from the largest emitters, but in a fact that I guess when you talk about the marginal change, the largest emitters can make a bigger change in terms of the overall bigger picture here. So when you're talking about, I guess, you want to change the behavior of a company, then you're kind of stepping into the more impact style of fund mm. uh, in terms of the ESG spectrum. So first you have your negative screens and your positive, then your combination of both in terms of ESG integration. And then you have a more impact style fund where, you know, you have a mission to achieve and and then you almost at the other end of the spectrum, you have your philanthropy almost. Mm. Uh, so if we're talking about an impact fund, then I guess we have to talk about our Earth Fund. So that's ticker E-R-T-H, and that's a beta shares climate change innovation ETF. And I think that's a really good point for investors is that it can kind of feel, I know when I first started, it can kind of feel like ESG is this homogenous box and it's just sort of a, a tablecloth that you put on good, nice funds. But I think it's so important to recognize just even in the conversation we've had, we've just talked about three different styles of uh, screening or three different styles of investing or three different styles of products. And there are ETFs that are just negatively screened. There are ETFs, even within the negative screening, there's lots of different filters and lots of people that have different values. So it's a very good reminder to get under the hood and to fully understand where your money is going and if it aligns with what your values are to the extent that you might be a negative screening investor, you may not care about ESG, you may be an impact investor and equally you may want to do charity in the form of philanthropy. I don't know if BHP uh, will accept the likes of, you know, an envelope of money, please do better. Uh, but it's a really, it's a really interesting point because I think we've got a lot of the conversation is focusing on the do-gooders and I think that's fantastic because maybe there's a little bit of pressure there. In your role as a portfolio manager, are you seeing those conversations happening? Do you think companies are responding to these inflow of funds into the likes of Earth and the likes of Ethi and for the companies that aren't doing or aren't committing to net zero do you think that they're feeling the push and that it will happen organically or do you think we need to do something more aggressive? 
No, I think they definitely are because, like you said, more and more people are wanting to align their values with their investments. And we definitely have seen this influx of uh, money into ESG funds. So, and even just more and more people are choosing to base their investment choices on ESG. So, according to the Beta Shares Investment Trend Support, 46% of people are actually basing their investment decisions on ESG factors. And, wow. and it might come to a surprise or not, but environmental reasons was the biggest reason of all, actually. Um, That's a really interesting point because I think a lot of the time that we talk about ESG, the predominant theme tends to be about the environment. But ESG itself, for anyone that doesn't know or has only just heard the term, ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. And it's the three pillars of what you might consider you know, well-run companies to some people because obviously there's lots of different factors. I want to talk about the less sexy part of the acronym, the G, governance. Now, as a lawyer and as someone who works in the corporate world, governance to me is one of the most important just because I find it really interesting to see how companies are run. And, you know, Ethi is, uh, I think it's fair to say, quite a tech heavy or tech focused. And that's because tech has potentially been more or quicker to adopt climate leading attributes, maybe. But it's interesting to me, Apple has, uh, Apple is a is going to be my case study, spent a record of $2.5 million lobbying Congress over antitrust and competition laws. And I think potentially those headlines are less less talked about than Apple's environmental record and committing to carbon neutral and getting their stores carbon neutral. So do you think that in the conversation around ESG, we're all focusing on the E too much? I think lots of people tend to focus or when they think about ESG, they just think about the E. But like you said, or even I believe so too, it's actually they're all just as sexy in your words, the E, <laughs> the S, and the G. Uh, equal equality sexy. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you really have to take all of them into consideration. Mm-hmm. So in terms of G and FE, we have um, human and labor rights as well as board diversity screens. And just as additional layer, what we also have for all our ethical funds is that we have something known as the Responsible Investment Committee or RIC. So the committee independently reviews and advises on any shareholder resolutions and touch on matters of E or S or G concerns. Um, And the RIC will also engage with companies where they see fit. So um, we hold ourselves to very high standards when it comes to stewardship. And that's mm. really why we have the RSC as part of the process for our ethical funds. Mm. So do you think, or do you have an example of a company that may have done quite well for the E and the S and not so well for the G or equally may have done well for S and G and not E? Yeah. So the one example that comes to mind is Tesla. So Tesla in May or earlier in May actually got removed from the S&P ESG index and that made a few headlines, but some may be aware or some may not be aware that we actually removed it in 2020. And the main reason for that was that it failed certain controversy screens. Some of the main reasons as to why the RSE decided to remove Tesla was due to controversy. So there were concerns regarding the potential environmental impacts of a new German-based production facility. There were also implications in terms of forced labor-related issues within its supply chain, and that the RSE has actually tried to engage with Tesla multiple times, and they've actually declined or they just haven't responded. So on that basis, the RSE decided to remove Tesla from FE 
Mississippi uh, in 2020. And that's, and this is just one example of, of us making sure all the RIC, the process, making sure that our funds are true to label and that, you know, we're not scared to screen out companies mm. just because. Yeah. And also that the, the S and the G are really important. I think the headlines that came out after, S, I mean, I think S&P 500's decision was perhaps more discussed because Elon tweeted about it like a, like a toddler. But it, it is interesting because behind the headlines, it, you know, you begin to see that the S and the G were really the residing factors. And he had, uh, there was allegations of discrimination and, as you say, forced labour practices. And I think it's important for investors to understand what their funds are looking at when deciding to add or not add companies to the fund because it really comes down to a matter of values and import for people. So if those things are important to you, then you'd be probably really grateful that Ethi did it two years ago, but equally it's important to understand how companies are getting added and deleted from ETFs. And so I think it helps for investors to understand how these comp- these ETFs are constructed and then figure out whether that aligns with how they want their money to be invested. A hundred percent. So going back to what you said earlier, when it comes to ESG investing or just broadly in investing, it's so important for you as an investor to understand what you're after, what your values are, and then to really understand the product, you know, go look under the hood, understand the methodology and to see if it aligns with what you're after. Mm. And one of the, I suppose, benefits of an ETF is that it's not just one company. Everyone always talks about diversification being a really important risk mitigation tool when you're investing. But often, I think especially with ETFs, sometimes some investors may not realize how important construction is because yes, you might be diversified in one way, but in other ways, you may the diversification may be less of a risk mitigant. So for example, uh, some funds may heavily focus on a particular sector. And I think we're noticing a lot of volatility in tech or sort of inflation sensitive stocks. We talked about last week with uh, Justin at Morningstar, how important diversification of all different types is. But I want to talk to you about the funds you manage in particular and volatility and in particular, what your thoughts are on how the market's going to move this year and how you see funds that might be more tech heavy or equally more other industry heavy being or responding to that volatility. Yeah, so I think when we're just talking about what's happening in 2022, there is just so much happening <laughs> uh, in terms of the broader macro environment. So I think the overarching theme or what you see in the headlines every day or every second day is inflation. Mm. And that even just towards inflation, there's so many points that are contributing towards that. So you have the China COVID, uh, zero COVID policy, and then you have also that currently the US labor market numbers just came out. It's a very tight market. And then you have the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, and that's also causing you know elevated f- food and fuel prices. And then from there, what's kind of the secondary or what's what's happening or the impacts flow on effects from there. And then that's, you know, the Federal Reserve and the interest rates, you know, are they doing enough? And then are they doing too much too quickly or will it induce a recession? So I think just with everything that's going on, investors are just really on edge, you mm. know, to say frankly. Um, and even though tech has really been feeling the brunt of it, the whole market has been feeling the pain. So global equities continue to weaken in May, albeit a smaller drop than in April. But 
one thing to remember is that, you know, investing isn't always up. Mm. There is risk involved and some volatility is to be expected. Um, but over the long term, equities do generally trend up. So that's why it's really important to know your long term investment goals, your risk pro- um, profile and tolerance. And yes, diversify, but diversify in a sense, make sure you're diversified across different sectors, different countries mm. and different exposures. Mm. So good. Such good advice, Jess. It's it's like almost like your portfolio manager for <laughs> but it it it's it you know we we talk about it a lot of the time but there is such an emotional aspect to investing that logically you know that most ETFs have in their PDS an expected time frame of at least 5 to 7 years generally speaking although you should check your PDS for what your individual ETF recommends yes, always check the PDS always check the PDS <laughs> that should be on my bumper sticker honestly I feel like I say that every week but it it, it really is important because again construction will be heavily detailed in your PDS and how the fund is put together and what makes what uh, makes it up but also how long the fund is encouraging you or recommending that you invest for in order to sort of actually be able to see out potentially, hopefully, obviously there's always your capital at risk, but see out those periods of volatility. But I'm curious uh, from your perspective, what would you encourage investors to do in this time? You know, are there there specific sectors that uh, are a good place to start researching in in terms of a counter to periods of volatility or periods of higher inflation? Because I think most investors would have only invested in low inflationary periods. And this is going to, this is a real shock to the system, I think. Yeah. So my first point would be to understand what your investment goals are, what you're trying to be, or or more just what type of investor do you want to be? So, you know, some people just kind of want to set and forget strategy. And then in that case, you just want a broad diversified exposure. But, you know, some people, they're more hands-on or they want to almost put their skills to the test and put them on some mm-hmm. tactical um tactical positions that are more shorter term in nature, or some just also want to just try out with some satellite positions in their portfolio. So it really, A, it really depends on what type of investor and what strategy you want, because then it's very different. Uh, so if, so talking about the current inflationary market, so the food and fuel prices have gone up. So then we have a product, which is the Global Agricultural ETF, so ticker FOOD, that's been quite popular. And then also Quality QLTY has done pretty well as well. And I think the other point to that is the natural anxiety from young investors. And I know when I started was, I feel like I need to outperform the market. And this won't be a problem if you're a set and forget investor, bless them. They are a more disciplined sort than I was when I was starting. But this, this, uh, constant need to outperform, first of all, you got to ask yourself why. And also it's not always necessary. Um, if you have a strategy in place, you don't need to be buying and selling all the time. And you actually, it's totally fine to just ride out the volatility and do nothing. And I'm not saying that everyone should do nothing, but it certainly is an option when you are feeling that inherent anxiety of, oh, maybe I should start investing in this or delete all my investments in that. And that can often be where your losses come from if you're making those gut decisions as opposed to just doing the recommended thing and just waiting five to seven years. 
<laughs> yeah, so I think for most people, including you know myself, is that the most important part is that you have exposure to the market and that you are investing to build your wealth over the long run, as opposed to doing nothing and or just putting it into a savings account. So putting like you know giving that putting that into perspective, the most important thing is gaining exposure. And if you're doing it in a sensible way with broad diversified exposures, then that's already a great starting point. I love it. Invest responsibly should be the tagline of this show. I think the there is like this mysterious veil over investing, especially over the the likes of portfolio managers like yourself, because there's obviously lots of money in flows. You guys are doing magical things like rebalancing, which no one I think really understands generally, except for I do love your snippets on Instagram because they have taught me so much about the mechanics of the behind the scenes. But for anyone that doesn't follow you on Instagram, what's a day in the life like for you? Yep. So a day in the life. So usually I start off my day a bit before eight. So then I just prep. I prep uh, all the files for all our funds uh, to go to the ASX and market makers. And then that usually takes, uh, or they all have to be up uh, before 9am. Mm-hmm. And then from there, from 9 to 10, that's where I usually catch up on overnight markets. I read up on some news and just seeing what's happening. And that's when I do my daily doubles, if you follow me on Instagram. And then <laughs> that's just the headlines, a summary of the headlines that I'm currently reading or that I'm following. And then markets open at 10. So from there, just really have to watch our funds, watch the spreads, make sure they're not too wide so that uh, investors can invest at um a reasonable price and I'm just relative to the NAV. Interject. Can mm-hmm. you explain what a spread is? Sure. So a spread is just a difference between the bid and the ask, or the buy and the sell columns that you mm-hmm. see on uh, on your brokerage tab. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? So it's eleven o'clock. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> And then from from 11 to 2, so obviously there's a lunch break in between, but from there, I just really work on product development, so developing new products for investors and coming up with new ideas as well as uh, uh, process improvements. And then from 2 onwards, that's when I'll usually trade for our funds. Ah, and so when you say trade for your funds, is that sort of, so you have funds coming in from investors and equally people selling, and is that literally investing that money into the companies that make up the index? Is that sort of very simplistically? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, the day-to-day management of the fund, so there might be some corporate actions or there might be some dividends, so just the cash management. And then, like you said, there's flow. So then I would have to, for example, if a fund received an inflow, for example, EFI, then I would actually have to physically invest or go to the market and buy the underlying 200 stocks that EFI invested in. That is so interesting. So- it's really, I mean, it sounds full on, but also very exciting. Uh, just one last question. I think if you would do a little bit of fortune telling for me looking into the future, what do you think is going to be the story of this year? What do you think the investing story of this year is going to be? So how I see it is we're probably in 2023 and then the headline might be Looking back on how we survived 2022. <laughs> Same headline in 2021 and 2020. Yeah. <laughs> We're in precedented exactly. times because the unprecedentedness of of it is precedented now. Uh, they, yeah, it's almost unprecedented things keep happening. Keep happening. So it's really yeah. just, you know, 
thing after thing. If anything, it's just really training our resilience and coping mechanisms on how to deal with all these unprecedented things I in all shapes of This is like investor emotional boot camp. You're basically just being trained to stay disciplined, keep be investing mm. responsibly and stay the course. I love it. I love it. Thank <laughs> you so much, Jess, for joining us on Big Swinging Stocks. It's been a wonderful pleasure and it's um, thank you for being my very first female guest and I'm sure the first of many. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was so much fun. 